listener feedback, a vintage metagame overview, and banned and restricted list updates on episode two of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode two of So Many Insane Plays, the podcast. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hey, everyone. With episode two of our podcast, we'd like to respond to some reader feedback, including last week's closing question. We'd like the to question pro- of the day. Right, the question of the day. We'd like to provide <laughs> an overview of the current vintage metagame and discuss the recent banned and restricted list announcement, or the lack thereof. But the vast majority of this episode is going to be vintage overview. That's right. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at many insane plays on Twitter. That's many insane plays. Or you can email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. So first up, we've got listener feedback. That's right. We got a number of great responses from folks across the interweb. Uh, thanks to everyone who, who sent us an email, a tweet, or just posted either on the Manadrain or the Quiet Speculation site. Um, one of the things that people said is that we should have kicked off our podcast with an overview of vintage. Right. So we're correcting that error today. Yeah, it seems like a good way to go. Um, we also asked, as our question for the day... What is the least unrestrictable card in Vintage? And even ask folks to give us their list, the entire restricted list, in order of least unrestrictable to most unrestrictable. And one good example of that is came in from email from Troy Costastic. And rather than go through his whole list, of course, we really want to focus on the top, meaning the least unrestrictable cards. I'm going to list the top five he gave. They are Tinker, Ancestral Recall, Time Walk, Time Vault, Yawgmoth's will. Yeah, time vault in the top five, huh? That's right. He gave a little bit of he gave a little bit of explanation here, which I quote: "I chose to put Tinker over a call because a call can be shut off by Chalice at one pretty easily, and when it resolves, it doesn't necessarily seal the game. A resolved Tinker is very difficult to come back from and can easily seal up the game turn one. So obviously, he's putting Tinker and a call one and two, and he's debated right. between those two. Well, it's interesting to see people's responses to this." Um, you know, the Twitterverse had a number of interesting responses. Yes, they did. Um, I think that, uh, you know, let me just explain one of the reasons why I asked this question. First of all, um, well, I actually wrote an article that was published last week um, on eternalcentral.com that actually has my list. And I also posted my list on the Manadrain. So you can go to the Vintage Issues Forum, which is towards the bottom of the Manadrain, and see both my list and other people's lists. Part of the purpose for this is is basically to try and figure out what's the most unrestrictable card in Vintage, not the least unrestrictable. That is, if you can actually create a list from mo- from least to most unrestrictable, then you'll have answered the question of what the most unrestrictable cards are. What should be the next thing to come off the exactly, list? Exactly, exactly. And by posing it that way, you force yourself to develop really, you know, pretty clear criteria, at least in your own head, for unrestriction and restriction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, the more I tackled this question, the least certain I became, the less certain I became of sort of my answers. And it really was a process to try and figure out where these cards are ranked relative to each other. I think that uh, there's a great deal of inherent uncertainty because 
really none of us have played with these cards unrestricted. You know, some of these cards have been restricted since the mid and early 1990s. They've never been unrestricted. We've never played in the four ancestral recall environments <laughs> right. within reason. Right. But I think that I think that for the most part, people who put ancestral, demonic tutor, and time walk in the top three are probably right on. It's it's interesting to see the incredible variance in certain cards. Like some people put time vault at the top or near the top, and some people put it near the bottom. I have it sort of in the middle of the pack. I just I just don't think the time vault is really in the top 10 even uh, when it comes to, you know, what's the least unrestrictable. I mean, Time Ball is a two-card combo. Everything else in the top 10 is a one-card combo. Necropotence, you know, Academy. These cards are one-card combos that win the game pretty fast by themselves, you know, like on turn one or turn two. Ancestral Recall and Time Walk. So, I mean, I I tried to to throw everyone a curveball and put Time Walk at the top. So my list has Time Walk at the very top. And the main reason is because... Time Walk is unique in that it is a card like Necropotence that wins the game, um, that can win the game in multiples. So that, you know, if you can Time Walk into Time Walk, look, turns are the most important resource in, in Vintage. Vintage vintage games typically last somewhere between three to six turns, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. The average is somewhere around, what, would you say 4.5 turns per player? That sounds about right. And that being the case, if you can actually take you know, two or three more turns than your opponent, you've won the game. I mean, your opponent has virtually no chance to win. If you can string together two time walks, I don't see how your po- opponent can possibly come back. Now, some people might make the argument, you know, that time walk isn't, you know, good if your opponent has, you know, is playing workshops or something. It's not as good. Or that Ancestral isn't as good as you're playing workshops. I, I don't know. I think that I think it's pretty clear that Ancestral and Time Walk and DT, that's, the consensus seems to be those are the top three cards. Some people have DT on top. Most people seem to have Ancestral on top. I think I'm the only one with Time Walk on top. I think Ancestral and Ancestral is incredibly broken, but Time Walk into Time Walk is more broken. And, and, and basically, it's, it just comes down to the fact, I think if you have multiple Time Walks in a deck, it can be reliably played on turn one, and if you have multiple Time Walks in a deck... I think you have a really, really good chance of taking three turns before your opponent has their first or second. Also interesting to note, Time Walk is the most unique of those effects. Right. Demonic Tutor, we have redundancies for in Vampiric and right. Imperial. Ancestral, we even have redundancies for in Gush and Brainstorm. There is simply no redundant backup version of Time Walk in the format at all. Right. The next closest thing is a five-casting cost spell, really. Well, the next closest thing is Time Vault, and Time Vault is a two-card <laughs> Time well, Walk. But you gotta, yeah, you got to have two cards there. But I, I think it's interesting that you zeroed yeah. in on how powerful the turn Turns is. Are. Land drops are some I, of the most precious resources in Type 1. Well, it's just like, if you, again, if you can take three turns before your opponent gets one, how can they possibly come back? Yeah. How can they possibly... I mean, it, that's that's... I think more than equivalent to necroing, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, and necropotence is cost three black, whereas time walk is a blue and a colorless. Interestingly, you know, I've been working on this this uh, book on the history of vintage, and I came across the time walk alpha playtest card. Uh-huh. The alpha time walk playtest card says on it, blue one, you know, time walk, take another turn after this one, and then below it it says minus one island, and then, <laughs> and then in pen. That is crossed out. They had you sacrifice an island when you played it? Presumably. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> and that was Very crossed out. <laughs> wow. Uh, so I, I do want... So most people had Time time Walk Ancestral DT at the top. But then there's... You know, I, I think it's important to also talk about what people had at the bottom. Most people actually tended to agree that Burning Wish, Fact, Flash, Regrowth, those cards were at the bottom. Some people have Library in that and Ponder 
closer to the bottom than others. Very, very few people seem to have demonic consultation as low as I did. <laughs> and I answered that question on the Mandarin. So if you're curious about that, you can see my more elaborate answer there. Um, a lot of people had thirst, and not surprising to me, much, pretty close to the bottom. I I don't think thirst is even remotely unrestrictable, but I think a lot of people really would like thirst to come back. Sure. Um, and so th- there seems to be a lot of consensus at the top and at the bottom. There's a lot less consensus in the middle, which makes this exercise so useful that people really are forced to confront the restricted list and try to understand it and grapple with it in a meaningful way. Um it, one, probably the most interesting placement and varied is strip mine. It's all over the place. Someone had it like second on their list, <sighs> right? And then someone, uh, you know, had it like second from the bottom, right? Lots of varying opinions and understanding of how effective strip mine is in the format, right? And people think that well, it really only goes in workshop decks, for instance. And maybe some people think that the predominance of gush in today's environment would diminish its power, mm-hmm. but. It's, so it's all over the place it in is. terms of how people appreciate it. It's interesting to think about strip mine from a tactical perspective as well. I mean, fetchlands are a at least for a turn a tactical response to strip mine. Um, I tend to think of strip mine in terms pretty similar to, to Trinisphere. It's not that I think that, that 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 strip mine would create a dominant deck, but I think it'd be a problematic tactic in that it would create a lot of sort of turn one and turn two kills right. comboed with other cards. Like if, for example, if you have a sphere and a strip mine and a wasteland. You can bury an opponent, you know? As a workshop player, I am always overjoyed to open <laughs> up an opening hand that has my strip mine because, of, as you said, of the tactical options it gives you. Decks are fully prepared. Well, I was speaking from the other perspective. Well, I know, like but the... Tactical p- responses to it, not... Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Well, that's another thing, too, is because of how unique and effective it is, decks have very little response to it. Decks are fully prepared to address Wasteland yeah. in the modern format. Right. And almost everybody... Rarely hedges against their opponent's what, strip mine. What would basically. a format with four strip mines look like in vintage? Would it be a stifle heavy format, like people trying to combat strip mine? Would it, would it be, you know, like I don't think people would go quite to the lengths of playing consecrate land, but would they play cards like maybe would would sacred ground be more of a sideboard card? You know what? Two things I think right off the bat. One. Basic Island would be a thing of the past. <laughs> the only reason Basic Island sees play right now is because you can only play one strip mine, but you can play four wastelands and ghost quarters if you want. Mm-hmm. That's why Basic Islands see play. If your if your workshop players can play four strips and four wastes, Basic Islands would just disappear right off the bat. <laughs> but you'd have much greedier mana bases in a way. Have, I, maybe not. Maybe you'd be, have a ton more fetches. Maybe people would load up. On Many that. more fetches. Gush would be still be very popular as an answer. Yeah. But also, I think you'd see Crucible of Worlds start to sneak into oh, the yeah. Jace decks. Basically, yeah. you'd as see an, as an answer. You'd start to see two, maybe really? three Crucibles, and then the offshoot of that would be very interesting interactions with Crucible. Lots yeah. more graveyard hate, for instance, right. would sneak in. So I mean, it had a very interesting Kevin effect. and I both played heavily during the Trinisphere era. And when Trinisphere happened, it was kind of a shock because it was legal for a year. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't as if, like, I mean, they restricted it in, in, in effective March 1st, 2005. And it was legal since, you know, March and uh, February of 2004. And we felt that, like, if Trinisphere was going to get restricted, it should have happened in September of the year before. Either or much December. earlier or not. Like, in, in March, <laughs> it was just strange. You know, in, in the main thing against Trinisphere, and again, they did this when they banned all the affinity cards, so maybe their attention was focused on sort of that issue of fun. Right. Trinisphere was unfair in the sense that it did lock people out of games. But if you were prepared for it, and there were basically two responses, Force or Wasteland. Right. Actually, the third response is another workshop. I mean, those were effective responses, but... It's funny, Trinisphere is really high in a lot of these lists. I'm not saying that's wrong. I don't think the, the environment, I don't think Trinisphere should be unrestricted, particularly the way that Workshops has all these tools today, like Golem. Right. 
and it's they have plenty of spheres. They don't need any more. Not even to say that people would play fortune of spheres. They probably would. Maybe some would play three. Who knows? You know. Right. In any case, uh, I think that the point is that um, the point is that it's interesting to see where people place Trinisphere, how they thought about it. Um, Trinisphere is just an unfair card, and then it leads to turn one and two wins. It makes people not want to play the format. So it's not really restricted because of dominance. It's not restricted because of tournament dominance. It's restricted because for other reasons. And I think Tripmine sort of falls in that same category. I think yeah. of them in very similar terms. Yeah, I agree completely. We had a reader write in, in fact, specifically on that point, comparing Trinisphere to Time Vault in today's day and age. <laughs> and unfortunately, there's, aside from banning, there's nothing we can do about Time Vault. Right I just now. think those are totally, totally different cases. Though. Well, but he was making the case that Time Vault may be keeping some players out of the format that don't like the dominance of that one card in strategy. I understand that, but one of the one of the big differences. Well, I'd say two things that Time Vault is not a, quote, dominant tactic compared to t- Tinker. Right. Or Yawgmoth's world. Absolutely. I'm not saying that it is. It's just, but it's right. it's predominant in people's mindset sure, about the format, absolutely. and you need to prepare for it. The second thing I would say is that. Um, it doesn't win on turn it, one by any stretch. Precisely. That's, yeah. that's the, the difference. I mean, it can, but. It doesn't lead to fully interactive so, games like so, Trinisphere can. In my list, I, I, I had Time Walk, Ancestral, Demonic at the top, and then below that, a card, three cards I think were really grouped. Necropotence, Tinker, and Mana Vault. Man, I'm sorry, Tinker, Necropotence, and Talarian Academy. And really, Mana, Mana Crypt is in that same category. Cards that just like are basically one-card combos that allow you to win. They each do it in different ways. Like a Turn 1 Academy is, I mean, in, in form with Mox Opal, you're mm. going to be able to win on Turn 1 very consistently. Just do incredibly broken things. Whether that's Turn 1 Jace... Or whatever, it's gonna right. be. It's gonna be broken. And fra- fa- I'm sorry, frantic search is frantic, unrestricted oh my now. Oh goodness, yeah. <laughs> not even, not even going there. Um, and then you know, tinker. Just, people put tinker at the top. I don't. I definitely don't. We. So you, Kevin, really don't like tinker at the top. No, I don't think. I don't think it's anywhere near number one. I mean, it's top ten, debatably top five. But I just think that tinker as a primary strategy, a, a four tinker deck, is actually going to be very easy to metagame against. And I think all the popular source, uh, sorry, targets for Tinker in this day and age would not make a problematic format. The, the, the counter uh, response to that is that the Tinker pilots would then diversify their their threats in response to the metagame that's responses. That's true. You'd see Blightsteel yeah. and Inkwell or something like, like that. Titan. Well, that's the point. Is yeah. You generally see one Tinkerbot today. Or you could see some very strange things that and, don't even remotely exist. In a four in Tinker in deck environment, you could have two or three Tinkerbots in a deck and play the one for the right situation. Or there could, it could just be like a total toolbox deck. Yeah. Like, you know, like ten different artifacts and <laughs> varying, you know, the things yep. that don't, aren't even remotely playable today. I just think that it, when you start talking about a propensity for artifacts, yeah. well, the format already deals with that to some degree. Right. You have entirely artifact-based decks going around and they're not destroying things, so... Right. J- Jason Jaco just transitioned to two other cards. Ch- I'm going to talk about Channel and Fast Bond, which mm-hmm. are very interesting, and then talk about the Draw 7s. Channel was, again, all over the place in people's lists. Sure. Ch- channel, again, is to me like Trinisphere and Strip Mine. It's, it, channel is actually, I, and I wrote an article um, evaluating its potential unrestriction for Star City Games some time ago. Channel is actually a, a card that can generate a super high frequency of turn one kills. Like, but it's so susceptible to many things. Right. Like the Storm 10 deck was in, in that right. you can get a very high percentage, but it's also very fragile. That's why I think it should stay restricted. But that, but it's you know some people have channeled towards the top. Um, the other card is Fast Bond. I think Jason Jaco like vehemently disagreed with my assessment regarding the placement of Fast Bond, which I had you know, towards the bottom. And one of the reasons I had it towards the bottom is because it's an amazing card. It's incredibly synergistic with Gush, no doubt about it. Fast Bond is a mana accelerant that doesn't generate mana. <laughs> right. It's 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 
always has to be paired with something else. It's, it's not Black Lotus. It's the voltaic key of the combo. It's the voltaic key of the combo. But, I mean, certainly it's good when you have multiple lands in hand. Certainly it's good with Gush. Certainly it's incredibly powerful with draw sevens because you get burst card advantage. So you can go, you know, Elvish Spirit Guide, Fast Bond, Mox, Land Land, Wheel of Fortune, boy, you're in business. Right. That's where it's most broken. Then it's also quite broken with, with Crucible of Worlds. So it could be paired in workshop decks or, de- or non-workshop decks that use wor- a couple workshops to try and power out um, Crucibles. I just think, though, that like if you're playing a Gush deck, in a Gush deck, if you could play with four Fast Bonds, how many would you play? It, the answer would certainly not be four. Definitely not. Not even close. Either two probably, or three. Precisely. Um, and so, you know, it, and then a related card is Yagmas Bargain, which people had, you know, I think people had a pretty good handle on. But again, compared to Ad Nauseum, it's better than Ad Nauseum, but, you know, it is what it is. It's no Mind's Desire. Mind's Desire, remember, is uncounterable for the it, most part. Well, Bargain is just like Necro in that having access to it, <clears throat> four copies would produce many more turn one Necros and therefore win lots of games. But Bargain but, is very, very rarely a turn one play. Right, Bargain Unlike is... Necro. Necro is frequently a turn one right, play. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but also, like Fast Bond, you don't want to draw two Bargains. Yeah. You don't want to draw two Fast Bonds. You do want to draw two Minds Desires, though. Like the Ad Nauseum deck has ha- has four Ad Nauseums because you want to see one. Right. And some, I guess, have three. Well, that's because it is right. basically the only desire, strategy for that a desire deck. Desire deck would have four Desires. You want Absolutely. a Desire and more Desires. But it's not necessarily given that you would play four Bargains. You def- I don't think you would. You, I think you probably you, would. You start with three, and you would yeah, test and go from there. Precisely. That's my view. Um, so... Uh, b- I encourage you to take a look at my article on Internal Central and take a look at the thread on the Mana Drain, the Vintage Issues Forum, and uh, I look forward to hearing more from you about uh, what you think about some of these issues in the future. And we'll raise these again um, next time the Banner Restricted List announcement comes around. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we'll talk about it from a little bit later in the episode also. While we're on the topic of listener feedback, though, we got one other email that I wanted to point out. This one came in from Nat Mose, who said... This one's directed at you, Steve. He, He said... Do you, Steve, and perhaps Rich Shea, if you know his feelings, regret working to rescue Time Vault from Oblivion? And he's talking specifically about the history with Time Vault there and how much you and Rich wrote about it. Well, I can't speak for Rich. I can speak for myself. Um, We talked, Kevin and I talked a little bit about this in the version of this podcast that disappeared. Right. (laughs) Episode 1A, 1B, (laughs) I think it was, that uh, didn't, didn't make the airwaves. Um. Basically, when I was arguing for Time Vault to be restored, it was in a very different metagame, one in which Flash existed. And by comparison, Time Vault seemed rather innocuous. So you have Flash, a two-mana, instant speed, blue, you know, combo. I, um, I have some measure of regret. I think that when I hear reports that people have quit or left Magic because they think Time Vault's ridiculous, that's disturbing. On the other hand, I think that some people, including my good friend Brian DeMars, who loves to contemplate Time Vault as a card, slightly overrated in terms of its value, having difficulty conceiving playing a deck without it. I played many decks where I can tell you, in my opinion, Time Vault is clearly wrong. A good example is TPS. You know, that my TPS deck, Time Vault is just wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just not right. And and I, and I think most people can concede that there are places in Vintage, including many Gush decks. Now, some people are going to be hyperbolic, like maybe Owen and Brian, and say, <laughs> if you're not playing Time Vault, it's wrong. You know, 
I, I can't concede that. I think that Time Vault is an option, a very powerful option. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily more broken or powerful than either Tinker or Yawgmoth's will, and those two cards exist. So it's close, but it's not more powerful than those cards, and as long as those cards can exist, I can't, you know, I can't really see that much of a problem in the format. Now, the the argument would be, do you, do you need to add another Tinker slash Yawgmoth's will to the format? Well, if it upsets you, I sincerely apologize. <laughs> but let's put... To put it back to your context, in the, at the time of Four Flash, it would not have been quite so important as not it was today. And it, also, it, your, your debate about the topic was much more principled than it was well, a consideration of just wanting the card in the format. It was, it was, it was a principled argument, but it was also one I made in a metagame context. Now, Flash existed, exactly. but there was also the Painter deck. Mm-hmm. The Painter deck had just emerged, and the Painter deck was a two-card, two-artifact combo, just like Time Vault. They cost two more mana, but had the synergy of comboing out with Red Blast. Mm-hmm. Now, neither, and one of the things I said when I was arguing for Time Vault is that neither part of the Time Vault combo is very good by itself. That's pretty much unique in the history of Vintage. Uh, I mean, every time that there's a combo part, it usually synergizes with something else, at least one of the combo parts. So take, like, World Gorger Dragon combo. Mm-hmm. Well, Bizarre and Dragon synergize with each other. You want to put the dragon in the graveyard so you can use the bazaar to draw more cards. Right. You know, and so there's usually synergies that exist with part of the combo. So, you know, um, Flash synergizes with Merchant Scroll, you know, and you can it's a tutor for it and and uh, you know, there's usually something else that can be done with one part of the combo. Not true in the case of Time Vault. I mean so again Painter's a great example, right? Painter Combo powers up Grindstone, but also powers up Red Blast. Right. So the Grindstone is sort of, you know, dead by itself, but at least the Painter does something. Grindstone did actually have some interaction with Goblin Welder when those decks existed That's that true. way. That's true. You could point. grind yourself in order to find targets. That's true. Neither part of the Time Vault combo does anything by, by itself. Well, with the exception, now, and the people have designed the TurboTez deck. Mm-hmm. You've got, like, Top that synergizes with Key, and now you've got the Key that synergizes with... with uh, Grim Monolith. Grim Monolith. Yeah. So you actually have more, these people who are designing more synergies around these cards, but they're not spectacular synergies. Top but, and key is not a powerful synergy. And how many years has it been since exactly. the initial conversation we're talking about and now when those things have finally surfaced? Exactly. So, I mean, from the perspective I was writing at, I had good reasons to think that it would be okay. Now, when I talked with Richard Garfield, it was just after all those cards had been restricted, but I'd already sort of settled myself into making that that argument. Right. You know, and, and again, I was comparing it to Painter. I mean, from that perspective, it didn't seem like Time Vault would be strictly better than Painter. I mean, Painter powers up Red Blast. Now, part of the problem is that an environment in which Gush and all company don't exist, Painter isn't as good. Painter, part of Painter's power was that Red Blast was a main deckable card in an environment of Gush and Flash. Right. Not true in the Lodestone Golem environment. If anything, I would say that the power of workshops actually powers up Time Vault. That if workshops hadn't been quite so good, and thirst hadn't have existed, and Tezzeret, and Tezzeret, and Tezzeret, you know, so there there were things that happened afterwards that powered up Time Vault. Right. They didn't have to print Tezzeret the way you know. <laughs> exactly. In fact, if they hadn't, we would be having a different conversation right about Presumably. now. Presumably. All right. Well, thank you all for those who wrote in. Keep keep that feedback coming, and we'd we'd love to talk about it on the episode. So let's move on to our vintage overview. 
we want to review what the key features are of the current metagame. And we've got a few different criteria that we wanted to discuss just to begin with about what what has contributed to the current state of Vintage. Right. So if you've never played Vintage before, if you're relatively new to it, how do you make sense of this big format? I mean, you know, there are two defining rules to Vintage that, in addition to the regular rules of Magic 1, you get to play with every set ever printed, mm-hmm. besides the unglued sets. You even get to play with Portal. Um, and second, you have a restricted list rather than a banned list. So how do you make sense of this gigantic format? I think that there are really two defining features that, and I I mean define in sort of defining the scope of the possibilities and that also constrain the possibilities in the format itself. And the first is the artifact accelerants in alpha and other very close or contemporaneous uh, accelerants, such as Dark Ritual, Mrs. Workshop, etc., and secondly, the interaction between the Alpha Dual Lands and the Onslaught Fetch Lands. These, you know, w- one thing Zvi has said not too long ago is that when looking at a format, he first wants to see what's possible. And the way you see what's possible is by looking at what mana is possible, what mana is available. So in a very real sense, these cards, the Alpha Artifact Accelerants and the other contemporaneous accelerants, and the Alpha Dual Lands plus Fetch Lands really define the possibilities. They define the possibilities in terms of the color permutations, in terms of the um, mana cost of, and the mana cost of spells. They expand the possibilities in the sense that you have the ability to play a land on turn one and then some additional accelerants to play higher casting cost spells, right. which is definitely viable. Right. But the, the flip side of that is that the power level of the spells that you can play is so high that you can't get away with just playing four and five spells on turn four and five mana cost spells on turn one every game. It doesn't work out that way. What do you mean by that? Well, because then you have the constricting factors of say, force of will, chalice oh, of the right. void, thirst for knowledge. You can't invest all of your resources into one. Big right, spell. the format doesn't work that way. It, it, you have to strike a balance of cheap, efficient spells right. with some well, bombs. Well, here's what I'd say. I'd say that. Um, Every spell in Vintage costs 0, 1, 2, or 3. Maybe you could say some blue spells that cost 4. Now you're saying, what about Steel Hulk Kite? What about... I think that Workshop is in, in, in cards like uh, Bargain are misleading because you use specific accelerants to, to be able to cast them. A, a Workshop really cheat, allows you to play... Uh, so within that normal bounds, 0, 1, 2, or 3, Workshops allow you to add 2 mana to the, your artifact costs. Mm-hmm. So you can play, instead of playing a two-mana spell on turn one, you're allowed to play a four-mana spell. Instead of playing a three-mana spell on turn two, you're allowed to play a five-mana Whereas spell. Whereas in Legacy, for instance, you may play a fetch land and a mox, now oh, this would be a, a chrome mox or a mox diamond, and play your Tarmogoyf on turn one. Or a That's dark what, confidant. Or a dark confidant. That's what your land plus mox gets you in Legacy. But in a Type 1 Workshop decks, your land is a workshop, and your mox is whatever, Precisely. and you're playing a Lodestone Golem, yes. which is your quote-unquote two-casting-cost spell exactly. on turn one. And, and, that's, and, and so from that perspective, Necropotence is really a one-casting-cost spell that's contingent upon having a Dark Ritual. Basically. And, I mean, so, I mean, you know, it, it, these, these ex- forms of acceleration allow and allow you to do other things that you, you know... I mean, we could take be a little silly about this and say, 
time lock is a one casting cost spell that you know that you know, <laughs> sure or the, but but you, I think you see the point the, the inf- acceleration changes the mana equations in the format absolutely and it also really heightens the focus on colored mana spells Steve and I have talked at length at certain times about what's the casting cost of meddling mage in type one <laughs> right it's not it's not right. like Time Walk. You can't re- reliably play it on turn one. Right. So it costs about one and a half mana or something. It's, it's not. I mean, two casting cost spells in Vintage can be played on turn one. All the Meddling, time. All the time. Meddling, not all the time, but a, a good part of the time. Sure. Yeah, well, frequently. but think, think of the spells that are played. Dark yeah. Confidant. Yeah. Uh, Null Rod. Yeah. Um, time Walk. Time Walk. These spells are reliably played on the first turn. Meddling Mage, because of its color requirements, is rarely played on the first exactly. turn. Exactly. And so color requirements are a key. That's one of the things that the Alpha Accelerants bring you. Right. It, 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 we've talked a lot about the Alpha Accelerants, but the, the dual lands and fetch lands interaction is just as important. I mean, so fundamentally, Alpha dual lands allow players to splash colors at very low cost. The When, when, when Magic was first printed and designed... Richard Garfield and his team were very concerned about over-specialization. In fact, they realized that blue did everything. They didn't want people playing monocolor decks. They wanted people to play multicolor decks. In the early year of years of the game, particularly 1994 and before Blood Moon, people were playing four-color decks with dual lands, no problem. Mm-hmm. And City of Brass just made that so much easier to do. Now, Blood Moon was the first card that really imposed a cost on multi on, on playing such, you know, four colors. If we've learned any from, anything from Legacy, it's that there's virtually no cost in going to two to three colors. And the main reason for that is... is um, fetch lands. Is, is fetch lands. In their interaction and with these with, alpha duels. With, I'm sorry, the dual lands and the interaction with fetch lands. When fetch lands were printed, it, it became possible not just to play four colors. That was already possible. It became possible to play four colors and a lot of basics. And much more efficiently and reliably find the precise colors you needed. Right. You could, with with fetch lands, you can play basic lands in a four color mana base in Vintage in Legacy. Yeah. Which is remarkable. It's unbelievable, and and it has and out of five colors in Magic. And it has long reaching impacts with other cards like Wasteland and Brainstorm and Sensei's Divining Top, etc. I sometimes wonder if Magic should actually have like six or seven colors. Because, <laughs> I say that with all seriousness because the ratios and everything else in Magic are so well designed. 60-card decks, four-card, mm-hmm. four max of individual, seven-card opening hands, they all produce s- kinds of diversities. You know, the, diversity of hands, diversity of strategies. And the limitations you mentioned on needing to play multiple colors in order to shore up weaknesses of other colors has been very smoothed over. Just... The fact that if you're going to play a two-color deck in in one of the Eternal formats, there's very little reason to play a two-color deck. You exactly. can just easily reach out to the third and the fourth color for what right. you need. Exactly. Now, there is a cost going to three to four in Legacy, but two to three is very minimal. You can yeah. still play almost the same number of basics. Absolutely. But in Vintage, there are decks that very easily will put a fourth color for yeah, one a card. A color is a dual land. A single, a single, a single volcanic land. island in a blue deck yeah. gives you access to that ancient grudge that you need when you're already playing Reliably. blue, black, and when green When you have already. seven fetch lands that find it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Plus you have the off-color Mox and Lotus. Right. I'm sorry, the uncolor Mox and Lotus. Right. So the difference between a three-color mana base and a four-color mana base, as Steve said, can be one volcanic island, and all of a sudden you've got seven, eight, nine ways to get it. Right. So if, if Vintage is defined by alpha art, uh, mana accelerants and contemporaneous accelerants and the interaction between dual lands and fetch lands in terms of what's possible, it's also defined by the, really the power of blue. Um, and really eternal formats are defined by the power of blue. Um, what's 
kind of curious is that almost all of the color decks in the format feature blue. And if I was looking at the most three most recent relevant legacy results, the GP Providence, the the Bizarre Moxen, and the last Star City Games event, and I think out of those 24 deck lists, all but two had blue. Now, they had very different color combinations, blue-red-green, blue-white, you know, uh, blue-black, green, whatever, but they all have blue. And this goes back to what I was just talking about in the context of the Fetchlands, is that you can run, you can choose among five colors in, in, in Magic. And if you can reliably, with very little cost, play three or maybe even four, how often is blue not going to be one of those colors? Right. You're going to have to have a really good reason not to play blue. Like, for example, I am playing with a super blue hoser main deck like Choke. Right. Or a Gadok Teague. And even then, Gadok Teague tends to show up in blue decks. Or I'm playing a workshop deck and I really don't want any colored. Between between the Eternal formats, the only three-color deck that I can think of that's not playing blue is Zoo. And, in, and Legacy. Not, in Legacy. In Legacy. And that's, that's really died down. Right. And that's... And mental, it, partly because of mentalness. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> blue, blue just keeps pushing it down. But aside from that, if you were to pick an archetype and then rank the colors as they contribute to that archetype, right. it's just very rare that blue's not in the top three. Exactly. And, and I think there's a stereotype about vintage. And this, the, if one were just looking at vintage sort of for the first time or on, on first inspection, you might say, and if you're looking at historical vintage decks, you might conclude the reason blue is in every deck is because of Time Walk and Ancestral. So, for example, if you look at, like, the old, I have the, those books, those strategy books from 1995, and you see, like, the, the, the black-white deck splashing, like, two underground seas and a, mm-hmm. a couple city of brass for Ancestral and Time Walk. It's what, what you look at. Legacy dispels that myth. It's not ancestral and time walk. It's blue. Period. The accumulated weight of printings. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a good argument, and maybe we could say this for another podcast. The brainstorm is part of the reason for the um the um uh, not on the on but um on the presence on the presence. Thank you. And brains of blue. <laughs> brainstorm is one of the reasons to play legacy. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> one of the things you can do in legacy that you're not allowed What's to do in type one. You've got all these different combo decks in legacy. You've got hive mind, time, time spiral, uh, t- the, the uh, high, tide. high tide. You've got the natural order combo. You know, you've got the taps. Sto- taps. You've got all these combos, and they all use brainstorm, and most of them use force. Brainstorm is just the most consistent way to manipulate these combos, to mm-hmm. find the combo parts and, and, and shuffle back the parts you don't want. Um, but but one wonders, if you were to ban Brainstorm and Legacy, which, by the way, after Brian suggested it, Brian DeMars, and I'm looking at these deck lists, it seems like, wow, maybe Brainstorm, maybe banning Brainstorm and Legacy, and again, let's save this for another discussion, would actually increase the color diversity. Because if if you basically can run three colors at no cost in Legacy... Then blue the question, is, blue then is the always going to be in the top three. Then the question is, what are the other two colors? <laughs> yeah, right, but blue is always going to be in the top three. Maybe if you ban Brainstorm, blue might not always be in the top three. Right. That's and th- that's the goal if you're trying to create color diversity. But in terms of vintage, it's just that um, blue does everything. It mm-hmm. draws, it protects, it counters, it searches, it if, tutors. If you take away Ancestral and Time Walk, you aside have from Tinker... The rest of the blue cards that are played in Type One are the basically some of the blue cards that are played Rain in Legacy. Storm, Ponder, and then you would add some Days, some Spell Pierce, Spell Pierce, man, Force of Will, Preordain. Force of Will is huge. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's, so it's, it, Force of Will is even bigger, of course, much bigger in Vintage than it is in Legacy, and it's quite big in Legacy. Yeah. I think my statistical analysis shows that Force is not even close. It's the far and away the most popular, popular uh, 
present card in, in Vintage. It's at the top of the most played list month after month after month on Morphin. It has been for a while. It's, it's in like something like 60, consistently between 60 and 67% of top eight deck lists. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and again, it, it's not because of a Force of Will archetype or a Force of Will deck. It's because of the omnipresence of blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just think the important point is that you know, blue is omnipresent in vintage. It basically is in almost every colored deck, um, but that's it's not simply because of ancestral and time walk. It's because of the accumulated weight of blue printings. What blue does mm-hmm. that everything else doesn't. Yep. I mean, so basically, you know, in terms of protection and counter magic, you know, black is the next best with disruption, and it's the sort of like in in legacy, you have the choice of playing with brainstorm, which is much better at searching than anything black gives you, um, in legacy, um, or you could, and then you can play. You look at like Thoughtseize and Duress and him versus Mental Misstep, <laughs> right? <laughs> Spellpierce, Days, etc. Right. Not, not really close. Well, so in addition to the accelerance and the accumulated power of Blue and the history of Magic, one of the other key differences for Vintage is the restricted list. Right. This is something that's unique to this. Well, it's the only sanctioned format that has a restricted list to begin with, but also it provides a set of cards that. While there are obviously numerically fewer of them in your deck, they're so powerful that they're still the structural focus of so many games That's right. and so many entire decks. There was a you know a, a long running debate in in the history of Type One slash Vintage whether cards should ever be banned for power reasons, as for just being too good, too right. struct, too structurally and strategically focused. Um, and I mean, in a format where you just ban a card, that card just is gone; it ceases to exist. In a format with a restriction, the card's influence diminishes mostly. Mostly. <laughs> Not necessarily in the case of Time Lock or, sorry, Time Vault or Ancestral or Yawgmoth's Will. These or cards are so tactically and strategically central. And Tinker as well. I mean, Ancestral, I mean, if you take Ancestral out of Vintage, the value of a lot of these tutors diminishes because the early tutor is almost always Ancestral because the most efficient way to build resources in the early game. Absolutely. So the, the the feature of having a restricted list is is very defining. I I, I did want to just emphasize the point that um, that in terms of understanding vintage, blue is 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 really potent. But it's not just because of the accumulated weight of printings. It's because of the ease by which you can play blue, and that's so. It's both the interaction of the accumulated weight of blue, but the, also the the fact that you have the alpha dual lands in the first place. If right. you don't have the alpha dual lands, then probably not nearly as many decks would... Blue would necessarily be in the top three. Right. Uh, uh, and when you talk about the accumulated weight, too, it's important to note that the blue cards that are featured in Vintage, they are signposts throughout the whole history of Magic, which really points to this point. Jace. You've got... Right. Ifs. You've got Ancestral Recall and Time Walk... You wait a couple of years, you get your you get your force of will, you get brainstorm first, yeah. then force of will, then you get tinker, you get merchant scroll, but you get merchant mean, scroll, yeah. which wasn't much gush. when it came out. Then you get your gush, and when now you've got oh, you got mana drain in there too, which yeah. I skipped, and just and mental misstep from New Phyrexia. Walk. You could look, yeah. at, you could look, you could easily take an a, a example list from an event that was last week, and you could point to cards from basically every era of Magic. And there's a blue card that right. represents the power of that color. So this is a, uh, a useful transition to our... Now we're going to turn to our uh, deck overview. But it, it's although blue is pretty heavily played, 
it's not the case that there isn't diversity in the Eternal formats. Right. In Legacy, blue-white Stoneforge deck is very different than the Time High Tide deck, is very different than the Hive Mind deck, is very different than the Rug Natural Order deck. These are all blue decks, but they're strategically very different. Right. And I would, I would say, Kevin, there has been no point in the history of Vintage, not one point, where the blue decks are so diverse. As right now, you mean? As right now. I mean, in Absolutely. One, and one of the reasons for that is it's almost, I mean, it's almost impossible to categorize these decks because, first of all, um, there are more blue engines than ever. It's usually the case historically that there is a dominant blue engine. So there is a dominant blue engine, typically a draw engine. Factor Fiction. It's restricted. Right. And then people resort to the next best one. Like when Gift. Factor Fiction was restricted, Gift. it was Intuition AK. Oh, Intuition, right. And then Gifts was printed, and people stopped playing Intuition yeah, AK. Which is the only reason why Intuition didn't get restricted. <laughs> <laughs> people played Gifts, and it was restricted. Oh, actually, it was Gush before. Oh, right. I mean, after Fact. So it was Fact, Fact's restricted, Gush, Gush is restricted. In, but people result, resort to the next best one, Gifts. Intuition AK, Intuition Deep Analysis. Then Gifts comes, Gifts is restricted. Then Thirst comes, Thirst is restricted. Then so, Merchant Scroll and Brainstorm Merchant and Scroll Ponder and are restricted. All these cards are restricted. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the blue draw engine is either the restricted list or an actual card that is soon to be restricted. Right. Well, we're at a place now where we actually have multiple blue draw engines that are unrestricted. Jace, Gush... Mystic Remora. Mystic Remora. Um, and then there are these like tertiary ones, like Intuition AK and Intuition Deep Analysis. Thought Cast is not trivial. Preordain. Th- Thought Cast is not tri- trivial. I put Preordain more in the Ponder Brainstorm category. Right. But thought- I mean, so there are, and then Frantic Search. So there are actual blue, and then of course Dark Confidant is also a blue draw engine. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And don't forget Tezzeret. And, and Tezzeret, which is a, a, a an engine of sorts as well. So you have really more then I think at any point in history that I can think of, these like blue or blue-relied draw upon draw engines competing against each other and being mixed and matched. It's amazing. So much so that you have to make real decisions when you're building a deck. Yeah. If you just look at a deck and you say, boy, there's all these great blue cards, you can't right. fit them all in. And that was the problem with cards like, particularly like Merchant Scroll. Merchant Scroll was just like, this goes into every blue deck as a four of. It was behind, the driving force behind the Gifts deck and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Incidentally... Uh, that's one of the reasons why I think in my sort of restricted list, I would prefer to unrestrict Gifts before Thirst, just barely, though, because even though Gifts is a more broken card, Thirst has proven its utter dominance of Vintage, you know, particularly with Time Vault around. Mm-hmm. I feel like Gifts is just slightly slow enough. I mean, and, and people, first of all, Gifts is very difficult to use, It's but it's incredibly good. Yeah, and it's, it, I mean, four Gifts has never lived in an environment without four Merchant Scroll and Brainstorm Exactly, as well. exactly. That and... And you've got Jace, you yeah. know. I mean, you have to, a real I mean, hard decision. Gifts is amazing. Um, anyway, I, that's sort of an aside. But, but so, we've we so got a environment is, where there are lots of blue decks competing each, each, each other. And like in Legacy, there, well, it might not seem like it to the to the new observer, right. but there's actually a lot of subtle variation in these decks depending right. on which of these engines you choose. So, so I mean, in the past, there had been blue decks and vintage competing each other against each other, but it's usually the blue combo deck, like the Dark Ritual combo deck, which is heavily blue. The blue fish deck and the blue control deck. Well, there is no the blue control deck or the blue combo deck. There are many the blue control deck and many blue combo decks. Right. They are competing against each other. And so we've had a very difficult time trying to sort of parse them out as we're looking at the data to prep for this. And so anyone who's listening along here, if you're very familiar with vintage decks, you're probably going to cringe a little bit at some of our groupings here, perhaps, <laughs> or maybe some well, we leave out. And we want to hear from you. Tell us what yeah, you think and what's on Twitter. 
It's many insane many plays. insane plays on Twitter. By all means, tweet us your response to this. But for those of you who are not intimately familiar with the current metagame, we've given you some broad categories for the blue decks here and some examples that you can point to of that are representative. And we might as well start with what's being called the vintage control deck. Right. So Brian DeMars, control player extraordinaire. He mm-hmm. loves love control. He's really designed. Um, you know, him and Chapin were instrumental behind reviving the deck again a couple of years ago. Um, you know, this is the modern version of the deck. Keeper. You know, keeper. keeper. <laughs> I, I like calling it the deck, like uh-huh. Chapin. Chapin and I both like, like calling it the deck. But it's, it, it is, um, and Brian, of course, is very fond of uh, Control Slaver. So his initial versions of this deck, which are now very popular, had Welders and a Mind Slaver. Two Welders right. and a Mind Slaver. Welder being, of course, very good against Workshop decks. But this is a very typical Mana Drain control deck. It's got Mana Drains. It's got Force of Wills. Um, it's got... Uh, he has... Uh, he used to have City of Brass. This this one doesn't have... No, this is... You're looking at the... the oh, the so my West. bad. Yeah, yeah, so he has, he has City of Brass. The main thing that, 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 that Brian has honed in on is realizing the Ancient Grudge is just amazing in current vintage. And part of the power of that is when you're looking for a card to fight artifacts in vintage, you obviously are zeroed in on workshops because they're very prominent, but you also get so much value out of its power against Time Vault. Exactly. And unlike Hercules Recall, which is not a very good answer to Time Vault, Ancient Grudge is difficult to disrupt. especially not a good answer now that they've got the Grim Monolith. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But Ancient Grudge is actually very effective, and it's a card you would leave in against your Tezzeret playing opponents. Oh, my goodness. Like Brian Brian says of those Tezzeret Turbo Tez decks, how do they win if I have three mana and Ancient Grudge in my hand? They they need to they need to thought seize you first and then force of will the flashback and then fight through your own counter magic. It's, it's just, virtually impossible. It's ex, that one card is like a three for one just by its and, presence. And in the way I don't know if this is so true to, at the moment, but the way that the workshop decks had had evolved, so they had gone from you know during the summer there was some dis- debate there were several mainstreams with the printing of scars of, of Mirrodin, they pretty sh- cons- much consolidated temporarily at least into like the Steel Hellkite build. Mm-hmm. And the Worm Coil, Coil Engine build to a lesser extent, but the Steel Hellkite build just gets owned by Ancient Grudge. I mean, yeah. it's got so few real key threats. Ancient Grudge just two for one every time. You can let Metalworker sit there and play and just be a one-two guy exactly. because the odds of them being able to put out three threats that you can't address with that card are are slim, especially if you right. still have other counter magic. So the main, the let's just talk. We've, we've talked a lot about the features. What is the strategic main strategic focus of Brian Demar's control deck? Vintage Control, he's he's a Time Vault deck that uses Jace as his draw engine. Right. He only has two Jaces, and he has a Tezzeret. Um, so the really, but there's no other draw engine there. It's just Jace, Tezzeret, and then metagame cards, and for Preordain. Which Brian loves. Which Brian loves. Brian is just thinks that card is amazing, and it's unusual to see it in a Control deck like that. You know, we would expect to see Brainstorms, but it's not like we would expect to see Four Ponder right. in a deck like that. So I'm really curious. That's kind of an odd thing. Well, it lets him filter out some of the specialized cards he's got in matchups that you yes. don't want him and speed his way to the ones he does want. So Those it, are good points. It's it's effective, and it works well for him. And he's obviously a well-versed control player, and he likes to have a lot of options in the decks that he builds. He likes his Nile Spellbomb, and he likes his Ancient Grudges. Right. So those cards let him put aside what he doesn't want at the moment and get to what he does. Ancient Grudge, number one metagame card right now, very yeah. possibly. I mean, he has be. been for months now. Could yeah. be. Well, let's turn to talk uh, about another major Jace control, but the Jace Bob control decks. 
So whereas Brian's deck only has uh, Jace and maybe a Tesseret for card advantage. For, Aside from restricted unrestricted, cards. Unrestricted card advantage. Right. Um, the long-running popular um, deck, formerly called Tesseret, has really been Bob Control. And this begins, really takes off, when Hiromichi Itao wins the Vintage Championship in 2009. And then last year, again, Owen and Bob Marr make the finals with the same deck, just evolved to compete with Lodestone Golem mm -hmm. and packed with chases. Right. So Bob, it's no longer just a Bob deck, it's now a Bob-Jace deck. Which we referred to basically in our first cast as the Jace's coming out party at the Vintage Champs right. last year. What's interesting is how well Bob and Jace synergize. So Absolutely. Bob is sort of what Merchant Scroll was to gifts. Bob to Jace is what Merchant Scroll is to gifts. They're just they lead one to the other. They protect each other. They fuel each other. Right, Bob. They they each help you find one another. And then once they're both in play, they just synergize to the point where they almost completely eliminate each other's drawbacks. Right. And you have you can create an insurmountable advantage. So that's really the second main main control deck. And that deck is also a time vault deck, though. Right. Uh, in the end. But it can win and does win games with either Dark Confidant damage or Blight's, Jace or Blightsteel. Yeah. So it actually has a lot more win conditions than some of these other decks. Right. But let's move on then and talk about Mystic Remora. Right. So Mystic Remora is a, is a third, you know, after you Bob and Jace, another draw engine in Vintage. And this goes back, uh, originally called Shea Mora. <laughs> Shea came up with this deck using uh, Commandeer, Meditates, and Mystic Remora. Mystic Remora is one of those cards that we have to, had we just discovered it in 2007, it would have been everywhere in the Gush metagame. No kidding. Um, and, and it's just such a powerful card. It's so good um, against the sort of fast blue-black decks in Vintage. Um, it's really good with Repeal, mm -hmm. which allows you... <laughs> so you've got the Mystic Remora in play. You're paying for it a turn after turn. Your opponent can't even play a Mox for fear of letting you draw cards or doing anything. And then on your opponent's end step, you repeal the Mystic Remora and then untap with all of your fresh mana, replay it, and you've gotten carded in it. You know, you, you, mm -hmm. It's just it's very powerful. And these Mystic Remora decks, though, instead of running Commandeer, they've run Mind Break Traps. I have a feeling they'll probably be running some number of flutters, Fluster Storms in the near future. Absolutely. So the way this deck difference, <clears throat> sorry, differs from the Bob Control, the Bob Jace decks, is Bob is almost directly replaced with Mystic Remora. A few more counter spells. Steve mentioned the Mind Break Traps. But they tend to run Jaces. And they tend to run Jaces as well. So it's more of a stack-type control deck in that it, it, sh it shaves a little bit of board control from the, from the vintage control deck, the four-color decks, and focuses more on controlling the stack. Um, there are some versions of the Remora decks that don't use Bob, um, but but you actually use Gush. Um, so are we are we turning the Gush decks now? Well, <clears throat> this really it dovetails to the, with the point that we started with, which was how these engines compete for space right. in these decks. Remora decks can exist with Bob, without Bob, with Gush, without Gush. In the sideboard. In the side, yeah, all different permutations. But this is a good launching off point well, to start talking well, about the Gush decks. Yeah, let's let's start talking about the Gush decks. We we tried to find. So in my Gush book, I identified sort of four basic Gush strategies. And by the way, the, the Gush book is a it's understanding Gush. It's 150 pages. I've got lots of sample games, problems, pretty pictures, <laughs> charts. Very, very useful. If, you, if you're not really familiar with Gush, 
and you want to get really up to speed, I would suggest you check it out. Um, you can get a paperback or an electronic version. But the gush it, from this site, Quiet Speculation, in, in my book I really talk about Gush Storm, which is Dark Ritual Gush, and the traditional Gush deck. You know, gush Storm was very popular the last time the Gush is unrestricted. Mm -hmm. Gush Agro Control, like Grow Variants. Mm -hmm. Gush Control, you know, Mana Drain Gush decks. And Oath, uh, Gush Oath. Um, what we, in the last couple months, pretty much all the Gush decks that we're seeing are converging towards one very basic deck list with like three or four cards different. It's amazing. When we were researching for this particular discussion point, we kept saying, well, let's find a different Gush deck. Yeah. <laughs> let's find another one. We're searching Can't top find eight. something different. Exactly. And they're just surprisingly consistent in recent top eight performances. This is a really notable vintage trend. It really is. And it will definitely inform results in, over the coming months as, as we approach the vintage championship. Do we have one of these lists up? I can just straight up. We have one from Guillaume here. And okay. the key features of these decks, Blightsteel Colossus and well, let me just Tendrils. Yeah, it, so it's... Uh, Black Lotus, five Mox in Mana Crypt, Blightsteel Colossus, Soul Ring. Demonic Tutor, Tendrils, two Thoughtseize. Now, some people like Jesse Martin ran two Duress instead of the Thoughtseize. Same idea. Vamp, Yawgmoth's Will, and then Blue Cards, Ancestral, Brainstorm, four Force, one Gifts, four Gush, Hercules, two Jace, three Drain, Scroll, Mindbreak Trap, Mystical Tutor, four Preordain, one Time Walk, one Time Twister, one Tinker, one Fast Bond, Regrowth, one Nature's Claim. Then he has his land is two Flooded Strand, three Island, one Library, one Misty Rainforest, two Delta, three Tropical Island, three Underground Sea. This stack, basically within three or four cards, looks similar to everything else we've seen. We've seen some lists with three Preordain instead of four. We've seen, I think, Jesse Martin cut one Preordain for a Mind's Desire mm -hmm. to make it a little more combo-y. And he, he doesn't have Library. But he had, um, like I said, Duress instead of Thoughtseize. Um, and he didn't have Blightsteel Colossus and Tinker. He had... Um, maybe he has emptied the Warren. So we've seen like a deck that maybe has empty instead of Blightsteel. Right. Maybe it has... We've seen two and three card variants of this all over the place. Uh, Eric Dupuis ran, uh, four, smashed four Gitaxian probes into here. And he had to cut like two Preordains and something else to do it. And I would expect to see more of that as players explore that card in an archetype right. like this. But they all look basically like this. They've got, you know, three Drains, uh, two Jace, um, you know, and of course the... Four gush and three or four preordains. I, I can't imagine running less. He doesn't have ponder, which is interesting. Apparently not. I just observe that. Um, and then, did the other deck have nature's claim? Yes, the other list had. I saw lists with one and lists with two nature's claims. But there's also lists very similar to this that run repeals in that spot. Right. So this is a somewhat surprising convergence of archetypes. Steve's Gush book has lots of, a broad base of Gush archetypes. Right. And we're Gush seeing... supports so many different strategies. Absolutely. Like a, I mean, Gush is really synergistic with Storm, so I can understand why Jesse would play Mind's Desire. Mm -hmm. But it also supports Control quite well. But for some reason, we're seeing a definite consolidation in the Gush combo decks, and much less of the Oath Gush, much less of Grow variants. A little well, bit of there. control. They're there, and and some have made top eights, but this is the predominant archetype for Gush right now. And, and what's interesting is how much Gush synergizes with Jace. Mm -hmm. And these decks, this deck has two Jace in it. Talk the, about how Jace and Gush... Well, Gush and Jace, similar to how Bob and Jace synergize, that once you get them both together, they, are, they just power each other up. With Gush, it does a few things. It facilitates the casting of Jace. You might not think that was obvious, but... 
on turn three, when you've got two lands in play, if you don't have a third land, you can pool two mana, gush, play your uh, one of your two lands again, and get four mana with those two and maybe a mox to get Jace into play. And once Jace hits play, what have you got? You've got three more cards in your hand from the gush, one of your lands and the two cards you drew. So his brainstorm ability is digging you effectively six cards in instead of three. And right. you can put the extra lands there now in your hand back. The two cards just interact so well. One helps you find the other, and once they're both in play, they power each other up. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just as synergistic as Bob and Jace. Yeah, exactly. It's, but again, it speaks to all these overlapping engines and how good they are together and how you have to make a choice. Now, you're, you're probably not going to see a deck that has Bob and Gush and Jace in it for right. several reasons. Kill me. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it makes Bob pretty dangerous. But it's just the combination of these cards is fantastic. I've been playing a Lotus Cobra list that Brian DeMars brainstormed and a couple of us played at the Waterbury last year. That deck, and that deck that shoehorns Lotus Cobra in, and the synergy of those three cards is just awesome. It's so much fun. Right. So that's really the state of Gush right now. If you want to prepare for a Gush deck, you need to be prepared for this combo variant. Right. It's not even... It, I just think it looks more controlling than combo. Well... It has like a Time Twister, maybe a Mind's Desire, and a Tendrils, but it's basically a control deck. And that's... It, speaks- it, res- it looks most closely to the control decks, except what's so weird about it maybe not from some perspectives, doesn't have Time Vault. Right. Now, some people have put <laughs> that in, and you're of the opinion that's not a very good place in a in a deck that well, leans toward TPS, right? which is not one we've I brought up yet. I also don't tend not to like Time Vault in Gush decks, typically because if you were to replace the Time Vault or the key with anything else, most hands, would you rather have the other card? And the answer is yes. Yeah, For absolutely. example, like, now, do these decks have Imperial Seal? Let me see... Gim's deck. Let me switch back no, to they, it. No, they don't. No, they, Gim's they, deck. They doesn't. all seem pretty similar. It's it's strange. It's <laughs> strange. <laughs> I was very surprised to see all these decks look so similar. You would you you would expect, especially as we move toward Some, the potential of Gitaxi yeah. and Probe, that Imperial Seal is going to start to show up in these decks. Yeah. <laughs> any in any case, we can move on to the right. So the the one of the major blue based archetypes that we haven't addressed yet is Turbo Tez. Right. So this is another completely different blue draw engine. And draw spe- engine. And we spent a lot of time on this in, in episode Card one because it had performed so well to Bazaar of Moxen. But these Turbo Tez decks, again, they start to look very similar as you look at several of them. The key features being four so, Tezzeret. Right. Sometimes well, so their strategic objective is to resolve Tezzeret and win the game, and they win the game by tutoring up the Time Vault. Right. So they run four Tezzerets and they accelerate out the Tezzerets with. Grim Monolith and sometimes Mox Opals. And a full complement of Voltaic Keys in most right. cases. So they're basically mono blue decks with a black splash for either, for, for basically Yogwill, Demonic Tutor, and Vamp, and in some cases, like Thought Seizes and Duresses. Right. And Cyborg Cards. Very aggressive strategy. Right. Um, some of them have taken to Combo running control. extra Tezzerets in the form of Agent of Bolas yes. <laughs> for a myriad of reasons, which we discussed in our last yeah, episode. Yeah, reference, listen to our episode last week. <laughs> we got lots to talk about that once we looked at the Bizarre Moxen yeah. results. But the Turbo Tez is definitely a force in the metagame right now, and you have to be prepared for it if you want to play. Absolutely. It's interesting, you know, we talked about last week how Jace and Tezzeret are sort of competing for control of the format. Now, I wonder if, if the Vintage Champs is also going to bring to a head the competition between Bob and Gush. Yeah. You know, it's like, which of those do you choose? And it's just not clear. I mean, they both synergize so well with Jace. That is, if you're playing a Jace deck. Right. In, in, or do you play neither, like Damar's deck? Damar really, Damar's really doesn't like Gush because he thinks it's weak to shops, and he's he's right. There's an element of truth there. Um, I'm not sure Bob is 
great against shops. It's good, mm-hmm. but um, you know, it's Bob just, might be increasingly good against shops in the Phyrexian Revoker era. We'll get to he, that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, since he actually combats that little guy on the ground. But anyway. But it's interesting to talk about that. Yeah, think about that. And, so, and of course, there's a third possibility, Mr. Grimora altogether. Sure, but, sure. Yeah, anyway. So there are other blue-based decks, which we want to touch on at least. Oath is one that's... If, you, if you're relatively new to Vintage, you need to understand Oath is a perennial. Yeah. It's a perennial for a number of reasons. One, it's relatively, relatively easy to play compared to the other more sophisticated control decks. You don't need to understand sort of the layers of strategic interim goals versus ultimate goals and how to connect them. Like, you don't need to understand everything I would teach you in my gosh book. <laughs> All you need to know is, I need to play and resolve Oath, and then right. activate it and win the game. Right, with a sub-plan of Tinker in some cases where you're using an artifact man to Oath up, so like Blightsteel Colossus. What is Oath using today? Well... In my experience, at the moment, there are two primary d- diverse options for Oath. One of Elephant Oath, which is going to have... That's the Iona. Um, yeah, Iona and Terastodon as disruptive uh, creatures. And the other one is a much more aggressive build with Blightsteel Colossus and Emrakul, usually featuring some Dragon's Breath in that's there strange. to give those guys taste. That's, that's the golden gun, so-called golden gun version. Which is James sort of of the, t- the TurboTez school of Type 1 at the moment, which is just <laughs> win faster. Right. So, And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Whereas before, you might have been trying to play a more controlling role with Oath. You now have the option to really just reliably win the turn it comes, the turn the Oath triggers. Of course, I really still like the, uh, the Gush Oath deck list using... Right. Tight Spout Tyrant. Right. Another option. You know, it's similar Which is to... insane with Gush. Just insane with Gush. <laughs> similar to Dredge. You draw your whole deck immediately. There are just dozens of options for the creature package in the end yeah. game for an Oath deck. True. It hasn't but been performing that well lately, though. It has not. Oath really hit a peak when Spell Pierce hit its peak. But, uh, you know, it's going to be there. It remains to be seen whether it will come back there, in a big way. There are lots of people who are of the opinion that Mental Misstep gets its best leg up in an Oath deck. We'll see how that one shakes out. I think that was part of a reaction to Spell Pierce, but also to Nature's Claim. Ah. From last year, Nature's Claim was a very popular oh, answer to Oath. Speaking of, of trends with Oath, I, a recent Oath list I saw make when a tournament had Beast Within. Oh, yeah, that's a good... Which is really synergistic, yeah. See our Chaos Warp discussion from last week about the flexibility of cards that can destroy any permanent. And how good it is that you can blow up your opponent's chase and give them a token. To uh, what, Oath. what an incredible response. Your opponent... You, you play Oath, but you don't have the, the Forbidden Orchard. Your opponent resolves their Jace, and they think they are set. Yeah. And then you beast within that guy, and not only do they not have their draw engine, but now they have a guy that they don't want. <laughs> <laughs> so incredible. I would not be surprised to see Beast Within as a, a, a small numerical staple in Oath for some time. I, I believe I mentioned Beast Within in my set review Did you? As in this context. Yeah. yeah, no surprise there. Other blue decks we need to talk about. Well, there are a number of blue decks. There's like Bomberman. There's now, these decks are fringe decks. There's the World Gorger Dragon deck. There are TPS decks. You know, there's Ad Nauseum, which is predominantly black. Painter, which is big. You just need to be aware that there are other blue decks out there. I think we mm-hmm. covered the main five. Right. If you're going to test for an event, you definitely want to test against the ones we've covered before. And so just to recap and, and read about Vintage Control, right? Jace Bob Control, which is the you know, look at Paul Mastriano's list that are evolved from the Hiromichi Hatao to Owen Turtenwald, mm-hmm. all the same archetype. And then Remora. we talked about Remora, and then we talked about the Gush deck, and we talked about Turbo Tez. Those are big, big five blue decks. Yeah, those are the big ones. If you're going to prepare for a tournament, 
You really need to prepare against those. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what isn't blue then. Now, blue is a significant portion of right. any metagame in Vintage for a long time now. But what else? There, I mean, so almost all decks in Vintage are blue XXX, blue XX, blue X, or workshops or slash bazaars. <laughs> right. There are a small subset of, of, of decks um, that are basically like green X beats that exist that use like that are like green white hate bears that use like Gattuck Teague, Leon and Arbiter. You know, Kosali uh, Prime, Kosali Prime Mage, and the new Leon and uh, Relic Warder, mm -hmm. which are really good against Time Vault decks and Workshop decks, and then green black, green white black, which are the same thing, but they get to run Dark Combat on and Duress effects. And there, are, there's a deck called Dark Times, which is the Dark Depths uh, Vampire Hex Mage deck, which is a, traditionally a mono black deck that's just right. focused almost completely on disruption in the form of hand disruption and null rod, and then it. Does a, spends a little bit of time tutoring up and finding dark depths and hex mage for the kill. But there is actually another. So so there are in you know sometimes decks like red green beats. I mentioned green X or goblins appear in top eight. So these things do happen. Right. We forgot to mention the fish deck. Well, I thought you were drawing a line yeah. between non blue aggro decks basically yeah, sure. and and blue ones. But I would say if you're going to pick a creature based deck that you're going to face that isn't workshops. It's most likely going to include blue, though. So, and it's going to be fish, and fish right. is a term of very broad category. <laughs> fish is a term of art. It's a term of affection, <laughs> really. <laughs> well, it's a historical term, though, because right. it has very little relevance in today's. It's the equivalent of what happened to Merfolk in Legacy, though. Back several years back, the the predominant aggro control strategy in Type One was one that featured a lot of Merfolk creatures, right. and it just was affectionately named fish right and now the merfolk creature type has gradually migrated out of it as creature i'm sorry as power creep has in, right. increased the utility of creatures and so now you've got well, the, the the first really big splash of fish was mark prez's blue red right deck and then we saw blue white and blue white black and the the main iteration of fish today is blue blue green white yeah Tarmogoyf is the big well, one. Noble they, Hierarch. They have Tarmogoyfs? They do. Uh, yeah, not well, not all of them do. But they typically run Noble Kasali Hierarch. Pride Mage and Meddling Mages. Kasali yeah. Pride Mage being the, part of the linchpin. And they often also have, like, Cold-Eyed Selkie, which is really powerful with Noble Exalted. Hierarch and Exalted. Noble Hierarch and Pride Mage. Um, Most of these decks eschew a draw engine of any sort, really, focusing on... Sometimes they run Jace and things like that, but they're typically te tempo-oriented, like right. you said. Although you recall, uh, Mark Prez's deck had Cloud of Fairies and Curiosity. Well, he also had uh, Standstill for a time. Yeah, also. that's right. So these vintage fish decks, though, t feature a subset, usually four to five of the creatures we mentioned, and a disruption package, almost always featuring Force of Will and frequently Days and or Spell Pierce. And they either have Null Rods, as which is really what di differentiates them and distinguishes them. They're right. usually the premier Null Rod strategy. Right. Although the Beats decks are as well. Occasionally Chalice of the Void in place of Null Rod, but Null Rod's definitely more problematic. they run Chalice, they run Aether Vile with Acceleration. Right. So these are what we would constitute as the, the blue-based aggro decks of the format. There's lots of variants in the creatures they pack and some of the disruption packages, but they all look very similar <laughs> these in These being this fish deck. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's a lot of variants, I think, in this archetype um, in terms of it, choices of individual there, there creatures. Other, there are some other fish decks, like there's you know, some blue-white and blue-white-black fish decks, and right. blue-red that I've seen in European top eights, but this is far and away the blue-white-green. Noble fish, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So let's now talk. Well, we've touched on, I think, all the 
the now blue and non-blue no. based creature decks. But let's talk about Dredge. Let's talk about well, the colorless wing of the sure. the vintage metagame really has two giant pillars: workshops and bazaars. One is larger than the other. Absolutely. Dredge is a perennial vintage deck. It appears in tournaments. You have to be able to compete with it. If you if you face it in the top eight and you're not prepared, well, and it appears you took a gamble and lost. Absolutely, and it appears that no matter what quantity and quality of graveyard disruption they print in the game, Dredge is still going to be a vintage archetype. <laughs> We've because got because the presence of Dredge is dependent upon the quality and quantity of archetype of graveyard hate people play. Exactly, there's an inverse relationship there, print. and so as players cheat on graveyard hate. Dredge players can take advantage and win events without much difficulty, in fact, if they don't face their appropriate Oddly hate. enough, Dredge is a deck that a lot of really experienced professional players like in Vintage. I think it's like sort of focuses... It focuses decision-making to a couple key things mm-hmm. and really allows skilled players to make the right decisions. It's sort of high-stakes decision-making mm-hmm. at the right point and then just win. So let's actually talk about what this deck list does first. So it, Dredge has five steps. All dredge decks have five steps. First, find bizarre Baghdad. No, hold on, we got the early game, the mid game, and the late game, right? The early game, <laughs> the early game is the, when the you mulligan step, for bizarre. You, you mulligan for bizarre Baghdad, and you and you do this either naturally or with serum powder. The Paris mulligan or a serum powder. Secondly, you play bizarre Baghdad and use it. And that's discard dredgers. That's the mid game. <laughs> and then. You, on your next turn, you begin dredging. You On your upkeep, you activate the Bazaar Baghdad and dredge, and then you discard the dredgers again to the Bazaar, and then you're in draw step, you dredge. Right. The fourth step is that you basically play, like, Cabal Therapies and stuff like that. Start using the cards in your graveyard as a resource. Narcomipos yeah, so come into play. Narcomipos, the bridge tokens are created, and then you dread return for the final step right. on Flame Kinsey a lot and win the game. Or you dread return on, like, Fate Stitcher and... Cephalid Sage to generate more more dredging more dredging so yeah. you can get the like super duper bridge from below. But if all below. goes to plan, the dredge deck is a very consistent deck. Oh yeah, assuming you get the act- linear active to the bazaar. It's sorry, linear. Assuming you get access to your bazaar, you can almost assuming reliably you don't to oblivion. Go off because you will turn continue two. to obli- mill oh, yeah. mulligan until you find it. Yeah, and many it's a very skilled dredge one. player that understands. The, the necessity of the bazaar in that deck and how you're meant to mulligan. <laughs> because there are some players who will look at a hand and say, well, this doesn't have a bazaar, but I could do this. I don't think anyone does that, except post-board. I, I think inexperienced players would do that, okay. is what I'm saying. Well, almost most players do. If you fan open a hand that has your Undiscovered Paradise and a Cabal <laughs> Therapy, and maybe it's got this, or maybe you're playing Ancestral... The, the deck is garbage without bazaar. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Anyway. It does nothing. It, yeah. that, is a, that is a path to failure. So, but the deck is very linear, as Post-board, it's completely different. Post-board, Dredge is a very interactive deck where you're basically fighting over resources, counterspells, disruption, discard. Like Some specifics that people know what we're talking about. Most Dredge decks have seven or eight copies of Nature's Claim and Chain of Vapor in their sideboard, plus extra lands. Or things lands. like Wismare. Um, One casting cost answers to predominantly Leyland of the Void, but also to creatures. Right. Dark Blast is a very common answer to Yixla Jailer. Yes. So these these dredge sideboards are Contagion. filled with a couple of lands and a whole bunch of usually one casting or zero casting cost answers to sideboard they cards. They've got some really good new ones in recent sets. Such as? They're not springing to mind, but yeah. I mean, Nature's Claim has obviously been Nature's used. Claim and Chain of Vapor are the, probably top one, one and two on the list in terms of most yeah. commonly used. you've got used. cards like Wispmare. Yeah. Um, I think that guy's Contagion. a little bit out of favor yeah. due to lack of Dark flexibility. Dark is, is important. Yeah. Um, but one of the trends we've seen in Dredge is 
towards more lands main deck and there's really a split some people run bloodgast and undiscovered paradise and some right. don't right i've seen a lot more deck more salvage yeah this bloodgast gives you a little bit more reliability in terms of having creatures in play and things to sacrifice to dread return and cabal therapy yeah but some players eschew that kind of consistency for a more explosive Approach maybe Fate Stitcher, maybe right. more Dread Returns, that so, kind of some, thing. Some Dredge players are also running main deck Leyline of Sanctity. Right. Which is stops cards like Tormod's Crypt and... And Oath of Druids, And Oath of Druids, but it stops like a ton of the Graveyard Hate. Extra right. Pate, does it stop? It doesn't stop Extra Pate, but there are several Graveyard cards oh, that so actually target the player, right. which Leyline of Sanctity stops. Yeah. And they call that... and Some people have called that Turtle Dredge. <laughs> But, um, yeah, that's another major variant in the deck. Usually the dredge decks have, like, one or two play slots they play with. Right. And it and could again, be, like, an Iona or an Angel of Despair. Oh, you meant one of them. yeah. Oh, yeah, just like Oath, There's the, like these... the creatures have a lot of variants in what, what's included. Right. So that's dredge, which you must you simply must be prepared for. And, Steve, what do you think? Seven sideboard slots? Six or seven <laughs> is the way to go? <laughs> well, <laughs> the I mean, subject like, of much debate. Like, yeah, it is much debate. But, basically, if you're trying to fight dredge... You pretty much need seven sideboard spots. Some people are greedy and run five and, and somehow beat Dredge. Some people run seven and lose. Eight, you're pretty much guaranteed. Eight or nine, you're really mm-hmm. safe. But seven's the, pretty much the sweet spot. One thing that's interesting is that there's almost no current vintage deck that has any natural uh, advantage over Dredge that you can point to. Oh, yeah. That's just almost all of them are universally weak to it. Yeah. Some, I guess I would say well, that workshops have more no of an tactical, issue game one. Yeah. But very few well, decks have workshops, anything to say. Workshop decks actually can, can do a lot now with the Worm Coil Engine and, you know, all that. Yeah, it's... Some scenarios come up, but... Uh, I mean, if when you drop a Frexian Revoker on Bizarre on turn you, one... You can't. Revoker's not right. land. You need yeah. Needle for that. Brian DeMar's main deck, Nile Spellbomb, is one of the only examples right. of a main deck right. answer to the deck. Right. And so everyone is reliant on their sideboard to really put them over the top in that matchup. So the other colorless pillar that we need to talk about is workshops and for those of you who don't know the Mishra's workshop archetypes in the past have featured a lot of prison type decks that we would have called stacks right but these those days lodestone golem era is here right when lodestone golem was printed the archetype really shifted gears and became primarily an aggro deck. last summer i spent a lot of time working on workshops i mean i really I tried to focus my attention to how do I maximize synergies with Lodestone Golem. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the cards that have the maximal amount of impact? And I looked at cards like Sculpting Steel, huge. Tangle Wire, huge. Null Rod. Null Rod it was one of those conclusions I came to that, that like turn one Lodestone Golem, turn two Null Rod is just... I mean, Null Rod is ridiculously synergistic with Lodestone Golem. Unbelievable. Because you, Lodestone Golem increases the, the cost of all of your opponent's spells, and then Null Rod takes out half their mana to you know, that the Lonesome Golem allows to come into play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I played a deck with four Juggernauts. I also thought Juggernaut is very synergistic with Lodestone Golem because of the, the clock. It's such a tempo play. And Juggernaut synergizes with all the other cards. I played a deck in the Vintage Championships um, that, that was pretty innovative deck design. Do you think, Kevin? I mean, you played it. I agree. At, at the time, I had, thought it was pretty good. We had eight, eight ley lines in the sideboard, too. <laughs> which was a lot of fun, and it won me at least one match against Oath, uh, piloted Shea. by Rich Shea, which was ironic. But, but what's interesting is that deck shell that I designed and then uh, later abandoned has been basically reemerged yeah. since the printing of Precursor Golem, which has replaced, uh, replaced Juggernaut, and it's made life hell on a number of people because... <laughs> Precursor Golem is so 
freaking fast. And, and it's nine power for five mana. Difficult to deal with. So Bill Copes, what got second place at Stratford with almost card for card in my deck, swapping Precursor Golem in for Juggernaut, which I completely agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, he ran the two Crucibles we ran. He did somehow... He, he decreased the number of Sculpting Seals by one and added uh, a, a Duplicant. Okay. But uh, it's it's identical. It's the mana base I suggested, the, the strategy I suggested, the Null Rod synergies I suggested. And the most recent key printing for that deck has been Phyrexian Revoker. Well, yeah, that, I mean... S- in terms of in, not in terms of that particular deck, but that, I mean you might be right. The that, archetype, yeah, yeah. So I know there are a number of p- people who are adding. Most most of the lists we've seen have started with three, I think, to be safe. I guess. Well, let's let's talk about Scars of Mirrodin block generally. What are the big additions to workshops? The big additions, the first biggest one is Steel Hellkite. No, Steel Hellkite. Oh, sure. Steel Hellkite has been by far the, I mean, it, at least from its introduction. It was the most played card from Scars. But then we're talking then about wor- Metalworker based then decks. W- then Worm Coil Engine became right. huge because Worm Coil Engine, what does it do? Why is it so big? I guess it's partly because, um, well, it frankly is pretty good with Forge Master. Right. Which is also big, has made a splash. And then. Uh, co- then uh, it's also good against other workshop decks, which is key. There you go. When your Precursor Golem is a beating against other workshop decks as well. All these creatures have really amped up the mirror, yeah. so that the workshop mirror has been a real battle for who can have the most efficient creatures yeah. in play. And there's, there's no reason to play stacks anymore. <laughs> I mean, people like Nick Dell are running stacks. I just got to question them. I mean, how, how how do you expect stacks to work against a Precursor Golem or a Worm Coil Engine? Right. I mean, it and just seems... Not to mention so many other decks like Turbo Tezzeret, which has so many more permanents than old blue-based decks did. Yeah. Well, and that's why Smokestack is definitely at its lowest point in many years. Precur- but, uh, Lodestone Golem, plus all the additional large creatures you just mentioned, right. have contributed to the deck is shifted away from being a prison deck and just focused on tempo plays and bigger hitters. But the, but the the Scars block has brought so much. Scars block brought Phyrexian Metamorph and Phyrexian Revoker, right. both of which are just huge. I mean, Phyrexian Metamorph is pretty much strictly superior to Sculpting Steel. It's right. replaced it. Anyone who's using was using Sculpting Steel is using Metamorph today. Right. And but and it has so much more flexibility. It allows you to do crazy things. And Revoker may be the most important of all. Because Revoker is the anti-Tez and anti-Jace card. Right. The Time Vault card. And Revoker is also very subtle in its synergies with Lodestone Lodestone Golem. Golem. Because... Turns off a mox. Right. Your opponent... People don't have four mox in and play every game. They, they, you know, they mulligan hands. They have one or two. When your opponent's trying to fight through your turn one Lodestone Golem and they play Polluted Delta Mox Pearl, your turn two Revoker is just as good as Null Rod against them. Right. You know, for a brief period of time at least. And, and so then, that, that's the period of time you need to win the game. Right, which is the, exactly how much time do you need. And not to mention like the impact... It's like a wasteland there. It's a wasteland on their mocks. Not to mention the strategic impact on, uh, on Planeswalkers, like you said, and Time yeah, Vault in general. Which is huge. Right. So Revoker... I would not be surprised to see a workshop decks with Revoker being the best performing workshop decks in Gen Con in a sure. field in which Jason and Tezzeret are dominating. Absolutely. It's going to be huge. Absolutely. And so, Revoker is the kind of card you it's, you... it's not easy to answer from one of those Jason yeah, Tezzerite decks either. You can cost two mana. Yeah, Ancient Gradget. Right. So take a look at this last deck you want to talk about, this other workshop version. You're referring to the Bill Copes deck? No, I just talked about his. Oh, sorry. I'm switching gears here. You want to talk about the, the Forge Master version? Right. So another one of the important Scars of Mirrodin block cards was Forge Master, which is a tinker on legs. And in a deck like Workshops, where all of your non-land permanents are artifacts... The guy is always going to have 
juice to go active. And our teammate, Mike Baumholt, brought this guy out in Legacy to great effect. Yeah. And he's... he's got, what, second place at the Stars of the Games tournament. Right. And he's obviously has just as much uh, shenanigans, if not more, to do in Vintage. Not to mention <laughs> the Blightsteel Colossus and Duplicate and uh, uh, Steel Hellkite and Phyrexian Metamorph, Sundering Titan. These things you can get almost all of those in Legacy. But also you have, if you want it, Time Vault in Type 1. Now there's some debate about whether or not that's a really good choice. But this creature just defines a whole metalworker-based archetype and is very, very flexible. It eschews some of the power that might come off of, say, a turn two uh, um, worm coil engine in Legacy for a little bit more flexibility. And it really helps you in the mirrors against other workshop decks. I would much rather be the guy with Active Forge Master right. than something else in the workshop mirror. Right. And also, it gives you the flexibility to find answers against blue decks and other creature decks. I, I agree with you, though. I would not be surprised if a Revoker uh, toting workshop deck golem were the deck, best. Yeah. yeah, Revoker Golem deck. And I don't know if I think that uh, Forge Master is going to be the we one at Gen Con. But. Right. We didn't even mention the fact that the, the Revoker pretty much doubles your clock. I mean, it's, it's, it, if you, you know, turn one Golem, turn two Revoker, you can do 14 damage in the next two turns. You know, and, and, and more often than not going to be lethal. Game. Right. So it's, it's turn faster. Yeah. Right. So, and it allows you to do things like Workshop Mox, Lodestone Golem, whereas our Gen Con deck from last year would have used that Workshop Mox plus something else to... Uh, I mean, it's got all the same tools. To play just, Juggernaut. Yeah. yeah, that doesn't actually speed up the clock any more than a 2-1 than a creature does, though it's much it's more true. disruptive. That's true. It's and you can spend... And you've got two extra mana. So you can realistically play... Revoker and a Sphere on turn two, and still be able to wasteland them. The difference is that the Gen Con deck or the Precursor Golem deck can play the threat and then tempo out. Whereas, right, right. You know, you can't really do that with Revoker. There's a lot of jockeying for position when it comes to the best creatures to have and play in a Workshop Mirror. That's it's for sure. It's going to be really interesting. So, Steve, I think we've done it. I think we've There's your overview. Of given the, the overview, uh, now. We did not talk about everything we possibly could have. Right. So there are like, please. I mean, it's like Legacy. There's a billion decks. We, we've only highlighted the ones that we think are most important for your gauntlet and right. the key strategies and understanding right. those strategies. And the things that are driving the trends in the format. Right. So, again, send us questions. Uh, we will be talking, I think, in more detail about individual decks in future episodes. Absolutely. And interactions and matchups and things right. like that. So if there's something you want us to focus on, please just send us a message. Again, you can tweet. In fact, you should su- suggest... Yeah. Just uh, topic areas. By all means, I I would not be surprised if we choose our next, which would be I guess our first deck focus for an episode from one of our listeners' feedback. So send us a tweet again. Many insane plays on Twitter and so many insane plays podcast at Gmail. Or just reply to the thread wherever you saw the link to this podcast or on the Quiet Speculation website. disappointed to wake up Monday morning and discover no changes to the vintage or legacy ban and restricted lists. Nothing. Well, it's not really surprising. I mean, Wizards had a pretty big decision to make in their most important constructed format, and 
I think it's reasonable to assume that, you know, throwing in, can you imagine the announcement? Stoneforge Mystic, Mystic and Jace the Mind Sculptor banned in standard. Burning Wish, unrestricted and vintage. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a, you know, a an appearance perceptual issue, you know, like, mm-hmm. let's focus on what really matters here. You know, people would have been like, well, what's this, you know? I don't deny that they definitely had bigger fish to fry. <laughs> but at the same time, think about Trinisphere. How, how often do they ban cards in the standard? Think, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. The last time they, they did, they, they banned they cards in the standard, they restricted Trinisphere. But, but this is different. This is different. I think, again, that was a restriction, not an unrestriction. Right. An unrestriction is cleaning up something. Yeah. It's like, uh, my house is dusty. I probably should, you know, do something about it. Get rid of all these burning wishes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Whereas a restriction is you're, you're solving a problem. And right. in the case of the affinity bannings, which well, that's the most recent, that's the previous standard exactly. bannings. Which is why I brought it up. They, there were some principles and, and, and ways of looking at the world that were at issue that they felt applied to vintage as well. And by they, I mean Aaron Forsythe. Right. Um, so I, I'm not surprised. Vintage, vintage, community fear not i have no doubt that they'll probably take something up in september that's what they did last year right mm-hmm. the unrestricted gush and frantic Circus. which was a much bigger deal than <laughs> some of the things that we have on our potential list now right big surprise i think everyone was very happy right um so there's that um you know it's interesting a lot of people have been discussing you know should jace have been banned blah 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 i thought aaron Forsyth's article was really excellent it really was. <laughs> it was. He really set the bar, so basically. So well written. Right. So well organized, so well thought out, so well communicated. There were even little literary flourishes. Um, it may be a long time before we see an article in that context that's as well written and generous and humble to the community. I really think everyone should read it just because he sort of sets out why it is that they restrict. And Man, you mean. It, it, I mean, well, the same principles. Why they ban, why they restrict. Okay. The same sort of underlying themes are discussed, you know, the idea of deck dominance, the idea of tactical dominance, the idea of the lack of diversity in the format. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I would, my one quibble with it is that I thought that his argument for banning Jace sort of was framed in largely Johnian terms rather than Spikeian terms, <laughs> referring to the psycho demographic, psychographics right. uh, magic players. So he sort of said, you know, many of you write us and tell us that, well, despite the one-deck dominance in Standard, the format is very skill-intensive. That is, the best players are winning, the best players are winning the mirror matches, knowing how to tune their decks for the mirror matches, and the tournament results would seem to bear this out. However, he said there is a much larger uh, section of the Magic Pie player base that nonetheless doesn't like it because diversity matters as an expression of their individual creativity, of the colors that are expressions of their personalities, and so on and so forth. You know, the need for individualization. That's very Johnny in terms. I think that he would have done better if he added the argument, just added, I think that was an important argument to make, but if he added the argument that also having one deck takes away a very important skill in magic. And therefore, frame the issue also from a Spikean perspective, Spike perspective, that one of the most important skills in Magic, one could argue the most important skill, is deck selection. And that a one-format metagame is inimical to 
the skill of deck selection. There is no skill. There is a deck, a valid deck, and everything else is strictly inferior. So I, I, that's the only thing I would have added. I thought everything, I, again, I would have added it. I would not, I probably would have led with the Johnny argument because most players are more sympathetic to that, I think. Mm-hmm. You know? um, otherwise, it was a really, you know, important statement. Um, but I think we want to delve into this issue more deeply. Um, I've come up with some frameworks for thinking about what makes magic fun, uh, what what makes formats good and fun. Um, so before I sort of go into that, we want to throw the question out to you, so that's our question for the day. We'll tackle it in our next episode. What makes magic fun? What makes magic fun? What, what, makes, what makes formats, formats fun? fun? What makes matches or individual games fun? Right, within a format fun. Right. What is it that you enjoy about Magic? What is it you don't like about certain Magic formats? What You could even flip the question. What makes a Magic format bad? Right. Um, and we just make a list. Send it to us. Um, we'll even you know quote you if you'd like. Send it to our email address, so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. Um, and um, you know some of these are going to be obvious. You know, like, well, I don't like a format with turn one kills. Mm-hmm. But we think that these various expressions of fun and unfun can be grouped into a couple of categories. And so we'd like to test that and hear what you have to say. And we'll talk about it in the next episode. All right, take care, everyone. Thank you.